Once again, welcome to the Robert Affalter Show. I am Robert Affalter, and this will be the morning drive again. I'm just getting started here and backing out of my driveway. And I noticed yesterday on our first morning drive episode that we had a little background noise. I'm trying to get that eliminated today, so we'll see if we can get a little clearer recording. All right, here we go. Today I wanted to talk about the proof for God. And sometimes I think we get in trouble even talking about the word God because that's going to bring up certain definitions and connotations and things in your mind. And it's all part of your programming, which we'll get into later. But basically what I want to get into is that there's something that started the universe, something that is a creator or consciousness universal intelligence, whatever we want to call that, it somehow has created us and gives us this ability to have will. And when we're looking at the proof for God, I think will becomes one of the few ways that we can actually prove that we have some aspect of us that was created by a creator and gave us an ability to control matter. And the matter that we have control over seems to be our brain. However, (laughs) there, there are limitations to our ability to control our brain. For example, if someone smashes our brain, we die and we no longer have the ability to control our brain. However, if somebody smashes our brain and we don't die, we still don't have the ability to control our brain. Or if we say take, let's say we take certain drugs and alter our brains, we don't have the ability to control our brain. And one of the things I'm watching as my mother ages is she seems to be losing this ability to control her brain. <clears throat> so. There seems to be limitations. In chiropractic, we call this limitations of matter. And as an example, let me say I'm right now, I'm driving my car, and I know how to drive my car. So the intelligence of me, this part of this part of the intelligence of me that knows how to drive a car, doesn't get worse if for some reason something happens to my car and it won't respond to the directions that I give it. In other words, if something happens to the computer, this car's got a computer, and if something happens to the computer and the car won't respond to me, then it's not because this intelligence of me doesn't exist, it's because something happened to the car. It's a limitation of matter. An example that we were given when I was a chiropractic student was that if you had Let's say you had a box with a lid that was tight on it and you needed to pry open the box. Well, you might have the intelligence to know that you needed to put something under the box lid and lift it up, or a better example might be a paint can lid. Paint can lids haven't changed for at least decades. They haven't changed since I was a child, for the most part. And you have to be able to put something under the lip of the lid and pry it up. Now, 
if you knew that, and all you had were toothpicks, you'd be unlikely to be able to pry that lid up. If you had a screwdriver, you could pry it up. If you had a paint can opener, you could pry it up. But the fact that all you had was a toothpick and couldn't pry it open would not mean that your intelligence couldn't determine what the right solution was. It's just a matter of a limitation of matter. You didn't have the proper matter to make things happen. So kind of with that as a start, let's go back through this proof that I developed and see what you think. So the story behind this goes back to, I guess back, we go back a little bit further, even back in 97 when I had this idea, what if everything I know is wrong? And things started shifting for me. <clears throat> One of the <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the experiences I had, I wrote a letter to the editor of the Skeptical Inquirer magazine, and somebody had written an article about chiropractic, and I took it, kind of a, took offense at it, and wrote a rebuttal article, and that started a letter writing back and forth between me and another subscriber. The other subscriber was an old man in Chicago. And he didn't have anything better to do, so what he liked to do was try to irritate chiropractors. <laughs> so he had gotten a hold of the editor of the magazine and got my address and had sent me a personal letter, which I followed up with a letter back to him. So we had a few letters back and forth. And this was in, like I said, this was in 97. I moved my office in 98 and was keeping the communications in my office. And sometime in, I don't know, 98 or maybe 99, I was cleaning up things and I found this series of letters. I kept them in a folder. So I wrote him another letter to see if he wanted to continue because I just kind of lost track of it during my move. And he did, but he wanted to do it via email now. And he was on a listserv and he wanted to know if I would be willing to participate in this email and it would be other people in this email list were medical doctors and, and PhDs and physical therapists I think too um, but it was kind of a I guess it was more of an elite crowd I'm not sure how this guy got involved I don't think he had any background related science or medicine or healthcare but somehow he was involved as well. And he said he would introduce me as an anonymous chiropractor so I had nothing to worry about and allowed them to question me and see what would happen. So I agreed, of course, I said I wasn't concerned about being anonymous, I, could, I thought I could take care of myself. But anyway, he insisted on making this an anonymous deal Turned out it was probably a pretty good idea because it was people that would probably try to prosecute me or persecute me because they're that kind of people. Kind of an interesting situation. In fact, one of them came up and testified at our legislature uh, regarding our scope of practice. 
and I found out that it was a group called Quack Watch. So it's a self-appointed group of people that think science is the end all, or what some of us call Escapes me now, but anyway, there are people that think science is scientism. I guess that's the thing. It's people that think science is going to be able to explain everything. So anyway, one of the things this old man told me is he said, "Look up falsifiability because that's going to come up." And sure enough, it was something I hadn't heard of. I looked up falsifiability, and it goes back to Karl Popper, a philosopher of science, who made this observation that things that are scientific, ideas that are scientific, have to be able to be proven wrong. And the idea is that we can never prove anything to be correct. There will always be some possibility that whatever we think is correct will be proven wrong. So the best science can do is to prove that something is wrong. So when we have an experiment, what we're really looking for is can we prove that something's wrong? If we can, then we can discard it. If we cannot, then it, we accept it as possibly true and continue on on the basis that it's possibly true. But we never know for sure that anything is true. But the real test for this is if we cannot admit in our minds that something might be false, then it's not science. And this gets us back to the question of God. How can you prove that a God exists? And the idea is that it cannot be proven, because no matter what evidence you come up with, the true believer would say, well, I don't believe the evidence, I just have to accept based on faith. So if you accept something based on faith, then regardless of what evidence is presented, you're going to deny the evidence and continue to believe based on your faith. So in other words, you can never be proven wrong. Your ideas about God can never be proven wrong. And that's one of the reasons I hesitate to even use the term God, because everybody's got their idea of what that means. And based on your faith in that idea, or lack of faith in that idea, or your hostility or hatred toward that idea, <laughs> you won't be very open-minded. So what I came up with was, well, this actually gets back to, I think maybe I talked about this in that very first episode, too, when I was reading In Search of Schrodinger's Cat by John Gribben. And Gribben said that the question physicists have been ducking since the time of Newton is, is the universe determined? And by determined, that means we have no choices. Whatever happens is going to happen, and whatever we do, we're going to do anyway, and we really have no choices in life. And once that really got me, once I really understood that, I applied that to evolution and said, well, wait a minute. Evolution is this process of life evolving from matter, energy, energy slash matter. I guess we tend to talk about in physics, we claim that energy and matter are really kind of the same thing. 
So if energy slash matter just evolved based on physics of energy slash matter, and eventually due to that interaction life formed, then life is this process that happened from a starting point of energy slash matter, and therefore there's really no such thing as a, as a mind or soul or anything other than this energy slash matter. And therefore we can't have will because whatever we are was already determined that that's what we we're going to be based on the matter. Let me give you an example. I go through this in, in one of the videos for the course, Mental Mastery. Let's go through the process. Let's say you have, well, actually what I need to do, I guess, is as I think back on the video, we have to start with a little lesson in Newtonian physics. So there's basically three laws of motion that Newton came up with. The first one is inertia. So inertia says that a body at rest remains at rest, or if it's in motion, it will remain in motion in a straight line unless acted upon by an outside force. Okay, so that's the first law. If you think about it, you understand that intuitively, if you see a leaf move, you understand that must have been wind pushed the leaf or maybe an animal sitting on the branch or, you know, you look for some reason that that motion is occurring. If you see a car swerve, you're wondering, well, what caused the car to swerve? So we intuitively understand that when we see motion, we're looking for a cause behind the motion or a change in motion. We're looking for a cause behind the change in motion. Now, the second law is force equals mass times acceleration. And basically what this says is the harder something's pushed, the faster it will accelerate. And acceleration remembers the change in speed over time. So when you accelerate your car, you put your foot on the accelerator and push down on it, you go faster and faster. And once you get to a set steady speed, you're no longer accelerating. Similarly, if you apply the brakes, you're decelerating, which is just a negative acceleration. But you're decelerating faster and faster until you get stopped and then there's no longer any motion. You're in a steady state. Now, the faster, the harder you push on something, the faster it'll go. Or if you use the same amount of force on something that's twice as heavy, it's going to accelerate half as fast. So that's the second law in a nutshell. And the third law is, let me think now. <clears throat> oh, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. For this one, I like to use uh, a shotgun, actually. If you don't understand, never hunt or used a gun, it might not make as much sense to you, but I hold a shotgun up to my shoulder, and when I pull the trigger, shot goes out the end of the shotgun, and the shoulder, or my gun, kicks back against my shoulder. So the shot's propelled out the end of the barrel, and the gun kicks back at me with the same amount of force. I, my shoulder actually moves a little bit because of the mass of my shoulder 
it doesn't move very much, but because of the small mass of the shot, it moves a lot. So it accelerates very rapidly out the end of the shotgun. So those are Newton's three laws of motion. So now if we apply that to evolution, we see that matter only moves as it's acted upon by outside forces. So if something moves, it's attracted or repelled, either magnetically or electrically. I don't know if we know of any other types of forces, mechanical. I guess mechanical forces too, where you just push against something. But all, of, all this energy-matter interaction, we're thinking is all random. And once you understand what I just said, you also realize that there's really no such thing as randomness because everything's moving based on forces. So randomness is just something that we don't understand all the forces. It appears to be random, but if you really understood all the forces, it would actually be quite predictable. In fact, one of the things I use in my video is an example of a pool table. So if you're playing pool and you got all the pool balls on the table, if somebody hits the cue ball and just breaks the breaks the rack, breaks the balls and makes them all go in different directions, the good pool player will actually be able to hit that and predict where the balls are going to go. And a good pool player is going to be able to see the ball and use the cue and get the balls in the pocket. The poor one's not going to be able to do that. But the whole thing is based on forces and energy slash matter. And you can't go back and change what's already happened. So, <laughs> you'd have to start a new game, in other words. Once, the, once you've made a mistake, you can't go back and say, well, I'm going to go back in time now and start this over. You can start a new game, but you can't change what's already happened. So now if we apply those principles now to evolution, evolution is based on randomness, this random interaction of energy slash matter, which we said really isn't random at all. It's just that we don't understand the forces. So this is where if we apply physics to biology, suddenly biology becomes a little more, right, call it scientific. We say, well, it's not random after all. And if it's not random, then we could have predicted what was going to happen. In other words, if we actually understood all the forces behind the energy slash matter, we could predict when life was going to form. And we could predict how it was going to act because we could predict the forces on it. If you carry that further, and in this video I actually go through the different mechanisms of change and evolution. I'm not going to go through that now. Frankly, I might not remember them all. I think there's four. And all of them really, except one, are based on external forces. Maybe I can go through them. Let's see. The first one, I think, was uh, change based on mutation. And it's something we think about in chiropractic when we're x-raying somebody. We don't want to x-ray the sexual organs because the x-ray might actually damage the sperm or the eggs and, and cause genetic damage because of this outside force acting upon the nuclear material of the egg or the sperm.
So that's an example of mutation based on external things. And there can be other sunlight, any any different forms of radiation, I would say any radiation, but different forms of radiation to excess can affect nuclear material. Of course, different chemicals can also do that. There can be a number of different things. Another one that can affect uh, genetics is migration. So a population of people or a population of insects, uh, Berkeley, I think, is the, the college that's got a great website on this that I use when I'm doing this video. But if we have migration, a different species can migrate or move to another area, and that will change the genetics if, they, if the uh, new species can interact with the old species, you'll actually get a change in genetics that way. Um, genetic drift is when something, a certain species is killed. An example I think Berkeley was using, if you had a certain species of beetles or something in the ground, if somebody walked across and stepped on the beetles, that would be a, might be an example of what did I just say? I've already forgotten. Genetic drift, I guess. And the last one was natural selection, and natural selection is just given that a species has a certain ability, it will be more likely to adapt or survive in certain climates or under certain circumstances. But again, the circumstances are external to the organism. The organism has no will. It can't change itself. It's just what it was. And it happens to act favorably or unfavorably just based on what was going to happen anyway. So, so what we're seeing is will never enters into the picture in biology. And yet what we think is somehow we evolved and we evolved a brain. And some people believe in complexity and think that, well, eventually the brain became so complex that the mind formed, and then the mind can then change the brain. But the reality is there really isn't any mind. All there is is the brain. That's the reality. We can't falsify the idea that there's a mind. So if I ask you, if I've asked people, people, the scientism people have frequently said, well, you can't prove that there's an innate intelligence or a universal intelligence. And I like to say, well, do you ever have a thought? And they say, yeah, I have thoughts all the time. I said, well, prove it. You see, we can't prove that you or I have thoughts or that we have a mind. It can't be falsified. That's a personal experience. We can watch the brain and we can maybe correlate what you tell us is your thought with what's happening in the brain, but we can't falsify the idea that you have a mind. So anyway, the evolutionary idea is that somehow you can have this complex brain and eventually a mind is formed, and then the mind can change the brain if you believe that somehow we evolve a will. And that's really the idea behind placebo effects or nocebo effects. Placebo, of course, is when we think we'll get well and we do, and nocebo is when we think we'll get sick and we do. Um, both those are based on 
the idea that there's a mind that controls our brain and our body and has an effect on matter, the matter of our brain and body. But what I realized when I heard the, or saw, read this from Gribben was that if we applied physics to biology, that can't happen. Because what really happens is you're born with a brain and your brain is the product of this matter that we call the sperm and an egg coming together in whatever environmental conditions happened while you were in the womb. And therefore your brain was determined. <laughs> and then whatever programming you undergo during your lifetime was also beyond your control. That was also determined. So if you could prove to yourself that you could control your thoughts, if you could control your brain, then that would be evidence for a will for you personally. And if you have a will personally, if you can come to that, come to grips with that personally, that yes, I can control my mind, I can control my brain, then the only explanation that I can, that well, I guess the explanation I prefer, <laughs> Let's put it that way. The explanation I prefer is that either some part of me was granted that ability, somehow I was given an ability to be able to control my brain, and whatever gave me that ability must have been the creator, or the idea that I like even better is that the creator gave me a body and the creator is me using my body. In other words, we are each, I guess from a biblical standpoint, sons and daughters of God. So that each of us has a spirit that uses our body to have this experience we call life. And if you think about that, that's, I just find that a pretty cool idea. And with that, I just parked at my mother's Spring Creek apartment here, and I'm going to sign off for today. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you're enjoying these, tell others. <laughs> let's let's spread the world word and change the world. This is Robert Affalter signing off. Thanks again. <laughs>